0: You have your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25. A couple of weeks ago I was talking to a pastor friend and he was asking me, what was I preaching on? What was I preaching through? And I said, well, on Sunday mornings I'm preaching through the Gospel of John and on Sunday nights I and the other pastors are preaching through Numbers. He said, what? Really? You're preaching through numbers? I said, well, we're taking selected texts through numbers. You know, we're not going exactly verse by verse through numbers. And he was like, still, whoa, numbers. But I hope you've seen as we've worked our way through numbers how relevant it is to our life together. How many times it's been that that there's been particular texts that we've been challenged by and, and ultimately led by the hand to Jesus Christ, our Savior, even in the book of Numbers, Tonight's text especially, I think, is pertinent and germane to the Christian life because what we have here is is a a picture ultimately of, of what sanctification is all about. We are either killing sin or we're being killed by sin, which gives you the title, Kill or Be Killed. But in order to see that from Numbers chapter 25, we need the help of the Holy Spirit because he alone can open God's word to us in ways that no preacher can So let's ask for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you tonight, the end of this day, this Lord's day, and we desire to hear the voice of the Lord again. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Open your word to us that we might hear the word of the Lord tonight. Grant us this grace, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Numbers chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel." And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from, ...from the people of Israel... ...in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them... ...so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold... ...I give to him my covenant of peace... ...and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him... ...the covenant of a perpetual priesthood... ...because he was jealous for his God... ...and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel... ...who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Zahlu, chief of a father's house, belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosbi, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor... And in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of and their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may not know the name John Owen, but I hope you do. And if you don't know his name, I, I hope you will learn his name. John Owen was one of the great English Puritans He was a supporter of Parliament and of Oliver Cromwell. He was the Vice Chancellor of Oxford. First a Presbyterian pastor and then he converted to congregationalism and led his congregation towards that form of church government. He wrote many, many books. His collected works take up 23 volumes of extremely small print in which he carefully explained and defended and applied Reformed theology to every sphere of life. And of those many books, perhaps the most important were the books that he wrote on overcoming sin and temptation. One book in particular, The Mortification of Sin in Believers, continues in this print to this very day. And that's because Owen helps us to understand the nature of sin and the need for us as believers in Jesus Christ to put sin to death. As he memorably put it, do you mortify Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now, Owen wasn't directly reflecting on this text when he wrote this, but he might have been, because that's exactly what this text teaches us. It teaches us that sin is always trying to kill us. It's trying, and in trying to kill us, sin has co-conspirators with which it cooperates. Sin cooperates with our hearts to try to kill us. Because, as Jeremiah tells us, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is, our hearts lie to us. They lie to us all the time. They seek to lead us astray. And sin has a willing cooperator, co-conspirator in our own hearts. Sin cooperates with the world, the world around us, to try to lead us astray. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and pride of life, they all beckon to us, seeking to lead us astray. And sin has in the world a co-conspirator seeking to destroy us. Sin cooperates with the devil himself to try to kill us. The enemy of our souls who, who wanders about, prowls about like a roaring lion. He has within us a willing co-conspirator called our sin, seeking to destroy us. Friends, you know, sin kills. And sin uses our hearts and the world and the devil himself to try to destroy us. I, I wonder if we really see sin that way. I wonder if we really see our, our, our corrupted selves, our, our remaining disordered desires as really all that dangerous. I wonder if we really see that that sin is, is, is an enemy that's always looking for an opening within us, inside of us, trying to, to work against the work of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we really see that sin is like a cancer that feeds on it, on ourselves, on all that we are, in order to, to destroy us. I suspect that for many of us, we've, we've, we've tried to make peace with our sin, with our remaining corruption. We leave it alone, it leaves us alone. Um, every once in a while, we give in to our baser desires, whether it's anger and rage or bitterness or, or, or gossip or slander or lust or whatever it may be. We give in to it a little bit. We feed it a little bit, hoping that if we just give in a little bit, it'll leave us alone and we can go on our own merry way. But our text actually tells us that that's actually a prescription to death. Because sin is seeking to kill us, to destroy us. So that we'll lose confidence in our God and in his grace. So that we will lose sight of our God and his glory. That we'll begin to to doubt the very things we claim to believe. You see, sin wants to kill. That's what sin does. Now, for the past three chapters in Numbers, Numbers 22, 23, and 24, we've seen how Balak, who was one of the princes of the Moabites, trying to destroy Israel, you remember? He hires a false prophet. A prophet named Balaam. And he brings Balaam in in order to curse the Israelites. But God intervenes and he turns all of Balaam's curses into blessings. But Balaam, the false prophet, has another strategy, not one of cursing, but rather one of beguiling, one of entrapping. God will actually use that very word for what happens at Peor in, in chapter 25, verse 18. For they harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor. But but really, it wasn't simply the Midianites or the Moabites. It was Balaam who suggested this strategy. Numbers 25 doesn't tell you that explicitly, but Numbers chapter 31 does. If you were to go to Numbers 31, you would find that, that Israel takes out God's vengeance on the Midianites and the Moabites. Balaam is killed in the midst of, what they, of the vengeance they inflict. But unwisely, Israel decides not to eliminate the women. And, and Moses chastises them by saying, Have you uh, let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So everything then that happens here in chapter 25 was actually based on Balaam's advice. And Balaam knew the way to destroy God's people wasn't to curse them, wasn't to attack them. Rather, it was to appeal to their disordered desires, which is exactly what happens, isn't it? Look at verse 1 again. Chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Now, what's described there is is common in the ancient Near Eastern world. Many of the ancient Near Eastern gods, including Baal, were fertility gods. And the way to gain their favor was actually to enjoy uh, in in full measure the gifts that they give, namely food and sex. And and it's just here then that you see the evil brilliance of Balaam's strategy. By By appealing to sin, to the disordered desires that remain in each one of us, Balaam sought to entrap God's people and lead them away from God. And, and really, the adultery and gluttony that Israel commits here in Numbers 25, they're simply the actions that spring out of wayward desire. The, dis- the disordered desire of their hearts. The Apostle James would put it this way in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin kills. But sin kills ultimately because it springs out of disordered desire. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 will actually mention this scene in Numbers 25. But he prefaces it by saying, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did you see we desire evil because our desires are disordered they're wayward our hearts want what they want and the problem is is that our hearts want the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life and that's because ultimately our eye, our, our hearts excuse me our hearts are idol factories i mean that's how john calvin put it in his institutes he said from this we may gather that man's nature so to speak is a perpetual factory of idols. Your heart, <laughs> those disordered desires that are within you because of, of original sin, they're constantly making idols for themselves. And our disordered desires as they, they want what they want because they want it. They want what they want and they take it because they've left off trusting the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ. And we end up worshiping ourselves, Luther's language is we become curved in upon ourselves so that all we see is what we desire. All we see is what we want. And our disordered desires, which lead us to sin, they actually bring us to a great liability, namely divine judgment. Because sin, disordered desire, kills. It brings judgment upon itself. Because, of course, God rightly brings judgment against us and rightly judges our sin. I mean, that's immediately what happens here, isn't it? Verse 3. Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And how does the judicial wrath of God manifest itself? Well, the leaders are executed. Verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And then their followers are executed. Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you killed those of his men who have yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And God's people, by extension, experience a plague of death that kills nearly 24,000. Verse 9, nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 thousand. And so sin kills. Their disordered desire brought about divine judgment that led to their own dying. And, and, And notice too, this judgment, it happens immediately. That is, God directly executes judgment through the plague, but it's also rendered mediatedly. That is, God uses means. He uses judges. He uses Moses. He uses the clan leaders to bring the judgment of God against those who have yoked themselves to this ancient Near Eastern fertility god named Baal. And it reminds us that even today there are times when God's justice is rendered directly. There are times when God brings his judgment immediately to bear upon those who follow their disordered desires through, through some kind of direct judgment. But far more often, God brings his judgment in a mediated fashion. Oh, certainly when sin beguiles us and, and leads us astray, we might open ourselves up to the legal system. We might have an encounter with the police. We might end up in court. We might have lawsuits brought against us. The, the, the left hand of God, if you will, the state and its police and justice actions might be brought against us because of our sin. But as Christians, the place where God especially executes his judgment in a mediated fashion is actually through the discipline of the church. It's, it's through the discipline of the church where, where our sin is brought before elders who cares, care for us. That actually God renders his judgment. But God doesn't do that in order to destroy us. Actually, by bringing our sin before elders who care for us. So that discipline might be applied. He's actually seeking to rescue us as his children. But God uses these means, ultimately, to render his judgment. Because if, if unchecked, sin will kill us. And God doesn't doesn't want sin to kill us. In fact, what this text is ultimately calling us to is is rather than letting sin kill us, rather it's calling us to kill sin. In verses 6 to 15, the bulk of this chapter is taken up with this graphic, almost R-rated scene in which one Israelite leader blatantly brings a Midianite woman who herself is a daughter of a powerful Midianite leader into his own tent to have sex with her. And Phineas, whose name incidentally literally means the Cushite or the Negro, Phineas sees what's going on. And in line with with what Moses had commanded in verse 5, he executes God's judgment against sin. He takes his spear and he pierces them both through. And when he does this, the plague stops. What, what motivated Phineas to do that? I mean, y'all, that's, this is a hugely like hard, embarrassing, awkward, like rushing into the tent while this is going on. I mean, what motivated Phineas to act and to, and to, to execute God's judgment, to kill sin? What, what motivated him? Well, two things. Zeal for God's glory and zeal for God's people. Zeal for God's glory, you notice in verses 11 to 13, four times there is a word that's used over and again. Look at it. Verse 11. The Lord says to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. What was the word repeated? That's right. Jealous or jealousy. Phineas was praised by God because he was jealous. And to be jealous for his God was to demonstrate zeal. If you have an ESV Bible, that's how this section is titled. It's... It's titled "The Zeal of Phineas." Now, when we hear that word "zeal" today, we hear it as the word of the fanatic, of, of the imbalanced, or of the fundamentalist. But but notice that that Phineas's zeal, his fervency, his jealousy wasn't for himself. Rather, his zeal was for God, and especially for God's glory. God commends him because he was jealous for His. God, it was God's fame, God's reputation that was at stake. If this is how his people act, then what would the nation say? How will God's people ever carry out his mission if the nations know that they are linked together with Baal of Peor, giving themselves over to, to food and to sex? What would God, the nations, say about God? I must act for God's glory. That, that's what motivated him. The New Testament speaks in just this way. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 encourages us in a list of exhortations to be fervent in spirit and zealous for the Lord. To be fervent in spirit. To be zealous for what? Zealous for our own cause? No, zealous for God's glory. But also Phineas was motivated to kill sin, not just because he was zealous for God's glory, but also because he was zealous for God's people. God says in verse 11, He was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. You see, Phineas saw that sin was killing them. Sin was destroying the people. Thousands upon thousands were dying because of their disordered desire. How could he stand before God as a pastor, as a, before God as a priest, if he let this go on, if God's people were destroyed? These, these two motivations to kill sin zeal for God's glory, zeal for God's people, friends, they're what motivate your elders to actually practice church discipline. We don't practice church discipline because we're mean, and we don't practice church discipline because we enjoy getting involved in people's mess. We get involved in church discipline and seeking to to try to woo you back so that sin doesn't kill you because we're zealous for God's glory. We're concerned of what the nations will say if they, ner- if they know what God's people really are like, if they act this way. But we're also zealous for you because we don't want you to be destroyed. We don't want you to be destroyed by your sin. We don't want you to be destroyed by your waywardness. And so we're zealous for God's glory, but we're zealous for you, God's people. That's why we, we seek to practice church discipline. But these, these motivations, they're actually... They're also the motivations for killing sin in our own lives. They serve as motivations for the Christian life. I mean, when we're zealous for God's glory, that's why we discipline our hearts. That's why we discipline our minds when they seek to lead us astray. That's why we pluck out our eye and cut off our hand when our disordered desires lead us astray. It's because we do not want God's fame and glory to be harmed in any way. And we don't want God's people after us, our own children, our own grandchildren, yes, but even the people of God more generally, to bear the the effects and the woundedness of our own sin and sinning. And so we put our sin to death. And that's why we're committed to corporate worship and the means of grace. These are the means of our spiritual preservation and perseverance. Our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, warns us that if we leave off the use of the ordinary means of grace of word sacrament and prayer we actually are placing ourselves in the way of danger in the way of committing some great sin that would bring harm to God's glory and harm to God's people and so i as a pastor get profoundly worried when people are missing out of the corporate worship of God's people i get i get i don't get worried for me i get worried for you Because these are the means of your perseverance and your preservation. And when you're not hearing God's word preached in the context of corporate worship, and you're not participating in the sacraments of of remembering your baptism and participating in the Lord's Supper, and you're not participating in the common prayer of God's people, you are not using the means that God has given you to kill sin, to live for God's glory, and to live for the good of God's people. That's why as believers, we're called to kill and not be killed. Now, the great motivation for us, ultimately, the hope that we have that, that this is actually what we're able to do is because our lives are hidden with God and Christ. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 will put it in just these terms when he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying because you are united to Jesus by faith... So that you're united in his dying and united in his resurrection. United in his ascension. And ultimately we'll be united in the last day when your body is made new. Because these things are true about you, put to death your sin. The reason why we are empowered to kill sin is because we've died with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We actually have the power to do this to say no to our disordered desires, and to say yes to God's way, that's what we're called to. This text, Numbers 25, is profoundly practical for the Christian life. And I imagine if John Owen were here, and he was reflecting on this text, he might be saying to us, be always at this work. Be always at this work while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. May God help us. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we bless you that you continue to remind us what the Christian life is about. Yes, it's about following after Jesus. But it's also about, out of the very power of the crucified and resurrected Christ, about saying no to our sin and saying yes to you. And so, Lord, we ask you tonight that you would grant us hearts filled with more love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Because, Lord, we know that ultimately it's your love in and through us that drives out our lesser loves, our disordered loves, our disordered desires, and ultimately increases our love for you so that out of zeal for your glory and zeal for the people of God, we might say no to our sin and say yes to you. Lord, help us, we ask. Grant us this grace, we pray. If we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.